talking fashion con On today's episode, I wanted to talk to you about the concept of black beauty and how fashion has been a vehicle of identity, pride, and how it has been an agent of social and political transformation for the African-American community. To do so, we have to go back to the 1700s and 1800s and understand that for almost 200 years, blacks weren't taking any decisions at all, uh, and even less in what they were wearing. So they would have uh, their owners um, handing them basically utilitarian garments that would optimize their performance for the work on the fields and for the domestic services they were uh, assigned to, yes? So the fabrics they would use they were, of course, very cheap. We're talking cottons, linens, but in their cheapest versions, we're talking about materials that breathe well, and we're talking about nothing interesting going on in terms of color, uh, or at least just standardized versions of color, because we can say even that these 200 years were just about an uniform tradition that would make them more controllable. Every time we think of uniforms, we talk about the suppression of the identity of the individual. Uh, the proclamation of slavery happened in 1863. It took place in 1865 when the Civil War ended. And from then on, um, blacks uh, started to move past that state of mind, which of course took a lot of time. And their first step, of course, was to conform to the white social uh, codes, yes? And this, of course, is so instinctive, I think, in, a, in order to integrate better, in order to progress, in order to, yeah, to be hopeful for the future. Uh, the first attempt, of course, uh, yeah, is, is, to, is to feel the need to, to be part of the group. So women started to struggle with training their hair to put a makeup on that wasn't designed for them really, uh, to lighten their skin tone. Men were also struggling. So clothing wasn't serving the, the same purposes because they weren't doing the same activities, you know what I mean? So yeah, that happened for another century and a little more. But then in the 30s, in the 1930s, something really cool happened because like uh, jazz was of course a big thing. And in, the 1930, in 1939, Duke Ellington was like a huge hit. And in, he was one of the people who was wearing these suits that were called the suit suits that uh, were worn by working class black men who were into jazz and party and who didn't have many options in, they didn't have any economic resources, so they needed something that gave them movement to work and to party. And also they wanted to express their youth and their personality. So they would wear these exaggerations of the male form that consisted of very wide shoulders, very long torsos, very wide legs. And uh, they would wear very estrogen colors, sometimes muted colors, but the silhouette was enough. And sometimes you, you would have patterns and sometimes not. But the thing is that overall, it was a very flamboyant uh, statement, a very strong statement. It was considered nonconformist. It was considered rebellious, of course. And it was adopted also by other communities like 
the Italian Americans, the the Hispanic community, the Mexican Americans, especially, they were called pachucos, by the way. And this suit was actually banned because of something that happened uh, with them. Look at this, like. Um, the suit had its peak of popularity in 1939, but then by 1942, it was prohibited and it was castrated, right? So um, what happened was that some pachucos were in California, then some marine students were around, they say around 50 marine students saw these pachucos and then they started beating the pachucos because they felt provoked by the, what they were wearing. So the police came in they took uh, they took some of the of the white guys to jail, but then they freed them and they took hundreds of pachucos just for the fact of wearing the suit. The suit uh, for all this existence did like awaken some social tensions because of what I was telling you of the of the nonconformity thing, but also because, for instance, the world production. Confederacy organization, something like that, uh, said like, well, we are in a war period. Let's remember, it was like the Second World War, right? So they were like, listen, the military could use this fabric better than you guys, so stop it. So there was that. And then finally, when the when these violent riots took place, the riots with the Pachucos, then there was a legislation that said, okay, this is prohibited, no one can do this anymore. So there was that, and then we move on to the 40s, and there wasn't much novelty there. Then in the 50s, the 50s were very special, because in the 50s, the first symbolic, uh, the first symbol of pride, of black pride, appeared with the Kente clothes. And the Kente clothes is like um, a piece of clothing that's very colorful. It's got a lot of symbolism because it talks about, for instance, uh, Black means uh, connection to the ancestors, spiritual development. Red talks about passion. Green is renewal. Uh, golden is uh, abundance, prosperity, and a lot of things that are inherent to the African tradition and specifically to the Ghanaian tradition because the Kente clothes is Ghanaian. And it, was, it became mainstream because in the 1958, uh, the Ghanaian president, his name was... Kwame Krumah came to Washington, D.C. He was speaking to the president. They took pictures of him. And these pictures were reproduced everywhere by media. And the African-American community felt, for the first time, represented. And they felt this was a, a way to connect to their roots. And they started implementing the Kente. So the Kente is... Um, it has many variations. You can use it for accessories and for clothing, but the most famous silhouette was the dashiki. Dashiki was not Ghanaian. It was uh, Kenyan, actually. And it's like the most uh, famous version of a tunic that you can think of. Think of the, of the tunic that you have in your mind, the African tunic, that's the one. Google it and you'll see. So people were wearing Kente clothes, were wearing dashikis, and it became um, yeah, a symbol of black pride. So that was, that was lovely. And, and if we go back just three years earlier, because everything, of course, happens uh, organically, the civil rights movement was having a moment, yes? There were different organizations. There was, of course, the Confederacy of Christian Leadership, for instance. And um, 
They were, of course, very peaceful in uh, everything they were doing and all the actions they were taking to fight uh, segregation. And they were basically just thinking of being for the first time in an intellectual conversation, in a political environment, and they were just extra careful to portray the image of a good citizen. So we have to think of Martin Luther King. He's a representative, a representation of this. He was very elegant, very polished, and this was what the whole movement promoted with their leaders. They had to look sharp, speak sharp, and be just congruent to this message of transformation, of deep transformation that just needed to water down some messages, yes? I mean, if you wanted to have the legislation changed, that was disruptive enough. So you didn't need, I mean, you couldn't have a punk there. You just needed someone more classical to say it, in, if that makes any sense. So the thing is that um, during the, the boycotts of Montgomery, uh, the acts of Birmingham, the kids in Little Rock, um, what else? Well, all the actions that were taken in the public spheres, they would be dressed up very, uh, very, very uh, elegantly. For instance, uh, during the boycotts of Montgomery, there was this leader who became, she's called like the mother of the civil rights movement. And her name is Rosa Sparks. She was a seamstress, also a secretary. She was wearing like a tailor suit, a rose on her head, a braided hair, little glasses, you know, like she was like a very nice looking woman. And she was sitting on a bus in the assigned seats that the constitution established for her. And then she denied the seat to a white person. And she was took, she was, in, um, she was arrested and took to jail. And this image was very powerful because it portrayed a very, uh, a very fragile image of a woman who was also doing something constitutional and who was being violated in just so many ways. So she wasn't the only leader. She was one of the, leader, the leaders doing this, but she became, yeah, the head once again of, of this movement. So yeah, this was basically the ideal of personal image that they had to portray. Uh, but then, in 1966, something uh, interesting happened. There was a there was a wave, uh, another wave, or a younger generation who was mad. And they were angrier. Uh, they were defending the, the the same principles. They wanted food. They wanted justice, health, education. They wanted yeah justice. And but they said, I mean, in this defense of the black power. I mean, so many organizations also took. Uh, took place, but the Black Panthers were, of course, the strongest. And they said, um, listen, the Constitution is letting everyone, uh, letting, uh, is uh, permitting the whites to be armed, but we are also uh, under the same Constitution, so we can also be armed. So let's create these civil patrols and let's defend ourselves from the attacks from the police. And that's what they did. So they did that, but they also were very strong on social work. And also the Black Panthers were very popular because they adopted uh, feminist uh, practices very early since, I mean, they were uh, incarcerating the leaders because by the moment women weren't considered intelligent. So they were like, okay, 
they didn't they dismissed women in that sense and women were doing like these social programs and were you know like uh assuming these leadership roles and they were uh just being very active so for men and women this was great and and yeah that happened uh that was something like very relevant happening there but visually how they disrupted uh or how they separated themselves from the civil rights movement was by divorcing from the kente clothes and this elegant uh preppy thing they were doing right and they started embracing blackness and saying, okay, we're black, so let's do head to toe black. So they wear black uh, leather jackets, black pants, black shoes, black berets. Uh, the black beret would speak of militancy. So their look was very aggressive, was very, it, it talked about, it expressed authority. It was very elegant. It was very, very striking to the eye. And, in it, and it actually, People say that it intimidated the police for real. So it was effective. So we have Canticloth, the cheeky. We have the, the Black Panther with the black turtle look. And we also have something we haven't uh, spoken of, which is the Afro. The Afro had its first appearance during the 40s during, uh, among the intellectual and artistic communities. But it was very, um, it was rejected from the from the inside, uh, even from the blacks in the south, it was rejected and it was seen as detrimental, and it was seen as something ugly. So uh, in the fifties, when all these movements began, the Afro had its resurgence, and it was embraced by men and women, and and progressively, like the black community started to. To, uh, to develop this sense or this self-esteem inside of them that allowed them to, yeah, to accept their features, their natural features. And this is where uh, the concept of, of black beauty is born during the 50s. And it's just natural that the more you accept the way you are, the more you uh, express what you are, the more you will defend who you are and the ways of the R's also. So, so yeah, the Afro was very important if we think of leaders in the Black Panthers. Uh, and I would say Angela Davis is very like top of mind. So Angela Davis was very strong, eloquent, uh, very feminine too. And she had this beautiful Afro on her. So yeah, these leaders uh, helped promote the Afro inside the African-American community. So that was like, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening.